Within moments of listening to Laura Cartman talk about her life as a composer, you know you're hearing from someone who has seen and heard and adapted to it all. You pick up on a consummate professionalism that arrives with that breadth of experience. A reassurance from someone who can rise to the occasion on an even keel, receiving whatever you entrust with grace. Case in point, Cartman's treatments of the mighty Marvel theme on her score for the Marvels last year demonstrates a special attention to that imprimatur. I am by no means versed in the MCU, but when listening to Cartman's contribution to the Marvel thematic canon surge, I got the shivers of recognition one can only imagine are common among the most devoted fans. And while Cartman is able to reach for and touch the marvelous with her music, she can also approach the subject matter of one of the past year's most unexpectedly beguiling films reflexively. Cartman's American fiction score tiptoes on and off the balance beam between industry satire and those capricious matters of the familiar heart. Along the way, you'll be laughing through one scene with tears in your eyes from the one preceding it. The beauty of the score is that it's off kilter like we all are and stumbles like we all do, then finds its way back in its feet and into its own rhythm and lane as we all hope to. This is perhaps what charmed many Academy voters who recognized the score's voice and agency by granting Cartman her first Oscar nomination this year. We spoke with Laura just as she was putting the finishing touches on American fiction, so we didn't get far into it. But hopefully, from this talk, you'll draw from and appreciate words and thoughts of wisdom that carry through all of Cartman's projects. We are very proud to share with you all our talk with the 96th Academy Awards nominee for Best Original Score, Laura Cartman. joining us and we're very excited to have you oh thanks i'm thrilled to be here and it's just been because we met in vancouver at vif and i was just so kind of thrilled and excited for you to hear your story and to see your success in the last couple of years has just been amazing and i feel like you're being recognized for your wonderful work in a way that perhaps you didn't feel you you were you know 20 years ago when when you should have been so I wonder if we can talk about this a little bit I think it's really fascinating at this time well I I appreciate that and I appreciate it coming from you um and I'm so thrilled to see your work evolving and you being recognized too and it's it's great look all of this is a product of advocacy and we can't pretend that it isn't because it is and I think 20 years ago, maybe when I when I should have, you know, should have, would have, could have, it the, the opportunities simply were not available. Um, the, like people just didn't hire women to write music for much. And I was lucky that I worked that whole time, but um, I wasn't working probably in the places where you know my background sort of indicated that I might be. I mean, I was scoring television movies and, you know, and doing all kinds of stuff. And then there were occasional projects that that really, I felt, showcased me. Like around 2001, I did a miniseries for Steven Spielberg called Taken, and we had a small orchestra, and that was kind of a big deal. But I think that what happened, or what is happening, which is so weird, is that when I decided to really throw myself into advocacy and trying to change the the way that the field worked, I didn't think it would benefit me. And I had made peace with that because you have to. You know, you have to, as somebody who's been around for a while and then you see younger people emerge and have opportunities that, um, you know, you would have loved. But I, I knew that what I was doing was so important that it had to go beyond what my own ego dictated. But yeah, no, it's great because 
it is coming back and and it's crazy and I didn't expect it and and I have to say like this experience at Abbey Road which uh, we were joking you know I said it's my first big movie and of course I can't see the music you know because I'm in my 60s but regardless here we are and I think there was a lot of joy in that and I think there's a lot of um there are a lot of us now who are in our 60s you know uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Michelle Yeoh and and other artists who are um who as a result of advocacy and a result of of Me Too are seeing our first chances happen at this point and it's very very sweet and I have to say um not at all bitter or sour. It's just like a it's like a yummy cake with the best frosting on top that you didn't expect. basically wanting you to sort of talk about your creative process and how you kind of work and if there are any interesting ways you generate sounds that inspire you. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's such an interesting process working on big projects that are orchestral. I, I think the smaller stuff is different because I'm recording and doing stuff in the studio all the time. Um, You know, the demos. For my smaller films, demos tend to be recorded because basically it's really, really hard to get the musical intention to clients if you don't do that, I find, you know. Mm -hmm. But for the larger stuff, the demos have to be great. And they've got to be great because otherwise you don't get approvals. And if the demos are not great, that means you have to start recording to make them great. And then, of course, when you're dealing with orchestral stuff, that becomes really tough financially. So that's why I rely a lot on the samples and and what I use. And I do have a workflow that I really like. Um, I work in Pro Tools, which I know will will, um, people will be shocked by that there'll be gasps (laughs) there'll be all kinds of you know some may faint I'm sorry Um, I work in Pro Tools mostly because um, when I was doing more independent films and documentaries it was just frankly more convenient uh, to to be there to be recording in it to be messing with audio it was much more fluid for me in the way that I I kind of process. Uh, But then it has stuck with the larger projects. And Pro Tools is finicky. Um, It sometimes loves me and it sometimes hates me. I I think that's just computers in general, isn't it? Yes, I I try to love it all the time. Um, Basically, I have a large orchestral palette. But with Pro Tools, you have to be really careful not to over track it. Like if you've got, is this the kind of stuff you want? You want me to be like super technical like this or no? Yeah, this is great. I'm loving hearing about this. Okay. So, okay. So, you know, you have to be sure to really not go above 300 tracks. And when you have a complicated busing scheme where you're trying to really have a separation that is useful in, you know, in all kinds of projects, but certainly in Marvel projects, um, I also use um, my iPad with, what, what Amelia? What's the name of the program that we use on the iPad? Um, Pat Patchboard. Patchboard. Yeah. Ooh. So an iPad with Patchboard. So that basically what I will have is I'll have like Violin One, and on Violin One will be the Spitfire Small, the Spitfire Large. There may be some Abbey Road samples. In other words, I will use a variety of libraries so that basically I'll program in program changes with the iPad and then have have a variety of possibilities in violin one and 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 so i that works for us to keep the track tap down but it also makes it nice nice and easy once we send um stuff to orchestration
So that's fundamentally the way the way I work. Now, in addition to that, I find certain libraries extremely helpful. Like I find the Abbey Road orchestral patches extremely helpful. They're big, they're loud. When you need to drive something to an end, I will just add those in uh, into, you know, an entire sort of sequenced and sampled orchestra to get me the power um, that I need in order to make the demos effective. I'd love to know, do you feel that your Pro Tools is an overhang of, of your playing background? And like when you started out, were you kind of mainly doing live things to get you the gigs? And do you, do you feel like, because you're a musician, I mean, you're an incredible pianist. So... Do you feel like that's that's your? <laughs> so funny you say that because I don't think of myself that way. Um, and and uh, and Nora, my wife, and I, she's a, a wonderful composer. We're constantly um, in battle over my piano playing. She thinks it's really good, and I just, you know, I have these really small thumbs. Anyway, it's a long story, but I'll tell you a story. And I don't know that I've ever even talked about this publicly. So, you know, I started when I started. I went, yeah, I went to Juilliard. I studied classical music. Uh, this was not in my thought process. And I went to the Sundance Lab, and I was sent there by my instructor at Juilliard, Milton Babbitt, who was the most oh, wow. Esot- yeah, That's Well, incredible. you know who he was. I, of the, course. The I most esoteric, the opposite of the guy who you, you think would recommend that you go to the Sundance Institute. And at that point, they did it by nominations. You didn't apply. You were nominated. So I was nominated by Milton. I thought, ah, well, let's go see what this is. And I went, and... Um, I got very, very excited. But the thing that I got excited by was not only composing to picture, which made a lot of sense to me, but the technology. Because you have to remember, I mean, that was late 80s. I had never touched a computer in my life. Like, when I was at Sundance, it was the first time I'd ever touched a computer, much less made music with it. And MIDI was brand new. And for me, at that point, it was like, that was the the, the big gong at the end of the thing because I could be the performer I wanted to be without the pressure of being on stage. So in other words, in the privacy of my own studio, which all of us are very used to at this point, I could like really play the piano. I could play the violin. I could play all the things that I, you know, knew about but never had the opportunity to do. So it was MIDI that really freed me. Um, to be a performer uh, more than 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 anything else and then as i became a good sequencer i had frankly got better i got you know my keyboard skills got better all of it got better because as you well know a lot of what you do like you sit there at a keyboard right i'm i'm left-handed but i'll generally be playing with my right hand my left hand will be moving faders then i move my right hand to punch the patchboard stuff so it's like it's performative you know composing and recording simultaneously I think for me, all of all of that is an extension. And I remember um, when I was in my early 30s, and we were using a program then. Uh, it was notation software, and I I was um, commissioned to write a string trio, and I wrote it in the notation software, and then I played it back, and I I just started weeping because it was this like I could hear it, and it was this incredible tool to be able to hear music as you're composing it. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that now because it's so much a part of our daily lives, but it's a magnificently powerful tool. And Charles, have you got any questions? I feel I'm hogging the airwaves here. <laughs> no, well, you're, you're, I, I think it's great to hear two composers like yourselves compare stories. And it's interesting to me as both ambassadors of Marvel now uh, I, I just wanted to let you both compare those 
those thoughts. I Maybe I would have pictured it more like you're both coming out of an editing session or some sort of review and stressed beyond belief and meeting up for a glass of wine. And I would have wanted to hear that discussion in the bar, like post session and how how you how those ideas play out and those comparisons of the workflow and the expectations um but maybe that's better reserved for for privacy <laughs> for the actual glass I'm of curious wine. about it well i do i have a I, I have a funny question for you do you dream about it like after it's over do you dream about the recording sessions do you dream about like like missing a cue or dream about like like literally we just finished dubbing the marvels and and i've just i just i almost just can't get it out of my body in a way you know i keep thinking about it and thinking that oh you know i i've got an extra 3 hours at abbey road and what I, do i have cues to record or you know i i i stay in it for a while after i'm done with it Oh, definitely. Do you find that? Yeah, yeah, but I have, it's like a recurring nightmare. I've had it like many times, actually, when I'm stressed on a project. And it's, it's. I have a recording session in an hour and the orchestra are there and I haven't written anything. And I'm just trying desperately. I'm, and I'm like wading through treacle and I'm just like, like, there's just nothing for them to play and everyone's angry with me. That's my recurring nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we all have them like we're in the orchestra or mine are like it, 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 mine are like there's extra time and, and you know, the sense of like having the, those people sit there and what can I do with it or forgetting a recording session or something like that. But yeah, I, I think it's 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 like it's more that Charles than even like. I mean, I guess there's gossip, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's just like, like honestly, it's hard to complain because the the projects are really yummy, um, and, and it's it, it. The thing about these Marvel projects is you get what you need, right? There, I worked on this documentary once called Half the Picture, and it was um, it was a Sundance documentary where a young filmmaker interviewed six directors, and and one of them was Ava DuVernay, and she was at that point making Wrinkle in Time. This is before she became like a massive studio owner, and you know, and 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 so many projects that she's got that she's shepherds. But you know, she she asked her the question: Was it hard? to have a big budget. And she said, are you kidding? What's hard is when you don't have a big budget and you're like traveling down the street with an iPhone out the window trying to get a shot without a permit. And I think I think it's the same thing here. It's like, like we're talking about sending cues to orchestration and we're talking about, I mean, you, mu you must have recorded Loki in Vienna, right? Yeah, yeah. Great, great orchestra, you know? Great. Fabulous yeah. people. It, it, you know, we're talking about the absolute tippy top top of of having what you need. Good music editorial. Anelli. Uh, you know, oh, cuts that and come. I love Anelli so much. <laughs> I give him a shout out. <laughs> yeah, well, Anelli, who's, who's a, a, Anelli, um, who is the, 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 now the supervising music editor at Marvel, of all things, this is a guy who knows, like, you could say to him, hey, Anelli, in Hulk 2, was there a major theme? And he said, no, Hulk doesn't really have a, because I know this from What If, you know, Hulk doesn't really have a major theme. It's more this. And he like, he is an, a literal en encyclopedia of Marvel stuff and is mm. an incredible resource. And I, uh, like I sent him the Marvel's theme early on and said, what do you think? You know, am I in the ballpark? And, 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 part B of the theme which is kind of out there in the world a little bit now because we did with BBC proms it goes um da -dee -ba -da -da -dee -da. Yeah. right it goes up 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 the minor sixth then falling to the fifth and he said I don't know about that I said but it's space and he said oh yeah okay it's space you know it's like that's like a space <laughs> interval you know but this is a guy who knows everything and he's such a resource and a help and and they're just there and so it's like it's hard to complain about the work and yeah it's high pressured and but they love music and they want to showcase music and they give us what we need in order to do that which is a a large orchestra who is capable the recording is good and uh, the music is showcased so it's hard to bitch about it it really is
seems that you come from a more of a traditionalist compositional background, um, coming from Juilliard and learning traditional techniques um, that you've now had to carry with you and evolve with the times and now accept and understand that all this new technology and all these new techniques are being incorporated into the workflow that you've come to be most comfortable with. How has that worked for you? What have you brought from your past and your origins and the foundations of how you learned to do this that still stick with you and guide you? And how much have you given way to kind of what seems to make more sense now and all these young composers coming in with new, fresh ideas? I think that I'm a, a, a sum total of a lot of different musical experiences. I mean, I grew up playing jazz as well as classical. I grew up as a singer. I scat sang and I did, a, I scat sang and I sang opera. So I've always had this kind of bipolar musical life. Um, and when I went to Juilliard, you know, I studied with a man who was the, uh, his his major focus compositionally was 12-tone music, but he was really misunderstood in terms of the way that he dealt with pitch. And so I took from that not necessarily, oh, gee, I want to write 12-tone music, but what is he saying about pitch? What is he saying about octave displacement? What is he saying about the way to structure something? How can those musical structures be relevant in anything you write, whether it's a song, film music, or concert music? Um, so, you know, so those are two parts. And then the third part that got added in was loving technology and learning that developing things sonically and becoming a recording musician. And the reason why, as I said, I do things in Pro Tools is because I like to process audio. And so um, everything is there. And I can use plugins. I can change the way things sound. I can even use stuff that I've recorded with an orchestra and mess with it. So that's why I like to record often and record early. Um, and and I mean, a lot of the marvels were um, were done with these vocal sessions, smaller sessions that we did early on that that were completely manipulated sonically. There are no synths in the score, but that's because the stuff that sounds like synths is actually audio manipulated. So I enjoy all of that a lot, and and so I think that is a that's something that a lot of composers play with, young and old. Um, I think it's about being musically curious. I don't think it's about like where you come from or what your background or age or, or, or anything is. It's like, are you a musically curious person? Are you interested in collaborating with a, with a variety of artists and seeing what they bring to the table? Are you interested to, in diving into technology and seeing what that can bring to your process? But, um, I, I use my my uh, conservatory training every single day, all day, every day, always. Um, ear training. I mean, just you know, I don't have perfect pitch, but I really, really worked on ear training. I mean, I'm a great booth reader. I can find mistakes in a score very quickly. That really comes in handy as a film composer. You're like. Okay, I heard a minor second. Where is it? Oh my God, there it is in the French horn. Sorry, that should be an E natural. So there, the, the, is that that's a very long answer to your very short question. No, I get what you're I get what you're saying, and I would say the you know the analogy that comes to my mind uh, as a, as a photographer and from the image standpoint is you know I grew up learning to shoot film, and uh, then suddenly there was um, digital photography. And I had to adapt and come to understand. But what I find more often than not, and maybe this is something that you feel in the music world, where there's still a differentiation and the, the trained eye or the trained ear might be still be able to say, I know that this, is a, this was shot on film and in a traditional camera. And this is a digitally manipulated image with all these stacks of layers and all these enhancements. And they stand on their own for and for, on their values for different reasons. And I wonder sometimes if like in the music world, in the scoring composition world, do a lot of people say, you know, still go back to this idea of, you know what, that's a real instrument. And I know someone's playing that and my ear responds and my emotion responds to that more so than I would be in, in this patchwork of things that have been enhanced with filters and plugins and things like that. Does that come up a lot or no? 
know. You know, in Ms. Marvel, we had real fun, and, and I think you've probably messed with this, Natalie, too. You know, she was a teenager, is a teenager, so the idea was there would be electronic music. Um, but often I would orchestrate it and just see what would happen if I orchestrated the electronics and created some kind of resultant instrument. I think, Charles, what you're talking about is kind of visual and musical timbre, right? So mm -hmm. you're talking about what is the timbre of analog? What is the timbre of digital? And, and how can you be the controller of those elements, right? And that's what I think are the things that we're toying with at this point in in our evolution. Like, I'm very, very interested. I'm very interested in timbre, uh, always. And I've started doing something lately that I really like. And I've started playing like layers and layers of piano on top of each other. And it's funny because it gives me the virtuosity that I've always wanted to have. And there's something off about it, right? There's something that's not quite you know, in the pocket, not quite, you know, what you have. But it's a way that I found to work around, like, not having, like, I'm not Art Tatum, you know what I mean? I can't, <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm not doing that. But I can do that in my own way through recording and through manipulating audio. That interests me. And so finding these kind of workarounds and, and, we talked a lot about advocacy, too. I think it comes out of that. It's like like I, I was sitting with a friend the other day who's an architect um, who's my age. And, you know, architecture is like, if you think composition's bad, architecture is like way worse. And she's teaching. And she said, I keep telling my students, that my female students, no matter what, keep banging into the brick wall. And, and I, I made this motion. No, go around the wall. Go around the wall. Don't bang no, do not hurt your head. Do not bang into the wall. So I think this whole, like, like a lifetime of basically trying to get around the wall, trying to figure out another way, another angle. How can I keep working? How can I do this? How can I, with this budget, manage to get this sound? I think a lifetime of that, as frustrating as it often was, and I won't say that it wasn't because it was, it was great training. talking to someone who was starting out and they were saying did you do you ever have this thing where you listen to your work after you finished it like they just worked on a podcast and they were saying um and you just feel like cringing at some of the cues that you've written and I was thinking like gosh that because I've been doing this such a long time now but I remembered back to being at film school and like just literally wanting to sort of fall into a puddle on the floor hearing my work back sometimes and like oh that's that but I feel that thing of gaining confidence in yourself is so important like I wouldn't present a cue now that made me feel that way and I feel like I've got more confidence in what I'm presenting before it would ever go on a on a film that's what I found myself saying but it was funny to remember back to that when I was first starting out as a composer I wonder if you've got any kind of lessons that if you remember anything like that or if you've got any kind of advice for starting out I think I do I, I think when I was starting out I would build in three days to, to to my schedule to listen back like like if I were doing like a television movie for example and everything is very tight on the you know they were like 14 day turnarounds but I would time my writing so I would move through stuff not dwell on stuff not obsess but leave myself that time to go back and listen again so that if something didn't work 
I could say, no, that's not happening, or, oh, gee, let's try this, or with the knowledge that I've completed the project. So this theme evolved. Oh, this one really got dropped. It didn't really. So I think when you're beginning, build in your own self-review time. Not to the point where you're like tripping yourself up, especially when you're trying to get through stuff, which is a lot of what we have to do, but in particular when you're done. So you can listen back and make sure you like everything you've written and you're you're happy with every every single cue. Yeah, I agree. The time is really important and managing time um, is a key part of being successful in this, I think. Yeah, I agree. And it's so hard sometimes when you do get those cues that are hanging around and, you know, you're kind of waiting for approval before you can send things out to the orchestrator team. And, you know, you've got an orchestral recording coming and you suddenly feel this pressure and stress that can lead you to those, you know, less interesting musical places, I think. So, yeah, I agree with you. Like time management, it's it's key, isn't it? But I would say send them out to orchestration. Oh, really? You send them without approval? Oh, yeah, don't wait. Send them out. <laughs> and and send them out and then either revise or send another one. Because if you have any extra time, it's very useful to record. Like, I've had ideas and stuff that haven't made it in the film. I mean, we there was literally just something that I, that I, I scored. I really thought there should be score. The team didn't think there should be. There was extra time. We recorded it. And then we wound up using it for a fix. So, it, it, you know, you're best ideas can wind up in different places than you imagined or designed them for. And I, I'm, I send stuff to orchestration. When I feel it's ready, I send it. I'm really curious to ask you about and it's something that you see sometimes like two two composers together it's like I, I've never done it so I don't know but I'm, I'm just wondering like would you mind speaking a bit about your living with another composer and how it's worked over the years and how that creative collaboration sort of plays out in from day-to-day life I can't imagine how that is but it must be great like the highs it's great and yeah it's great it's great <laughs> I mean, Nora has a very similar background to me. She went to Juilliard. She also studied with Milton Babbitt. She's 20 years my junior. So I think that a lot of the sort of the competition that might happen um, didn't. Uh, although I, I, I won't say that at times things haven't been a little gnarly, um, you know, especially when we've worked on different things. But for us, we're best when we're collaborating. So it's kind of great because sometimes it'll be like, hey, can you, you know, this is a jazz cue on a project I'm working on. Can you come in and, and do it? It's like, sure, because I'm more comfortable with that um, style. And she also is an, an amazing set of ears. So if I'm working on something I'm not sure um I composed music for another film, American Fiction, which we're just mixing and, and taking care of the soundtrack right now. And uh, I had had this idea about doing a bonus track, which I, th- I think I'll do. And, uh, and we had a, a big discussion about that. Like, what should the bonus track be? Should it be re- reflective of the score? Should it be something that's really outside of the score? And so I think that we have a lot of those kinds of conversations, conceptual conversations about, you know, about what's going on in music and, and whether something works or not. Um, and it's very, very, very helpful. I think it drives our son crazy, but, you know, <laughs> he should be so lucky. But that, this seems to be often, you know, Ryan Lott was talking about this, like having... The, his, he works in Sun Luck, so he composes in a group with his band. Yeah. And he said he just loves that kind of sounding board aspect of it. And I I personally find that, like, I have people around me that I'm playing things to and talking about things to, um, you know, my assistant, Andreas. And it's it's kind of so handy to have those people who are on the project and in it and they've been in the meeting with you and you can discuss ideas with them and then when you do go to those meetings where you're presenting to a director you've sort of had time to think it through with someone I can't imagine not having having someone to bounce those 
ideas off. It's really important. And I have to tell you, the first, like, really deep collaboration that I did with another um, musician was with Raphael Sadiq when we started working on projects, uh, I guess, about 10 years ago. And he comes from a completely different musical background, right? He could, you know, he played music in the black church and he comes from soul and r&b and he and i collaborated on stuff and i learned a lot from collaborating with him i learned how to listen in a different way i learned how to open up my ideas Like, I remember we, we did Lovecraft Country together, and I'd written a whole cue, uh, whole theme for something, and then he sent me an idea, and I thought, oh, my God, this is better. This is so much better than what I did. And then I took that idea and just, you know, and really developed it. And I, I think it's really important to have those collaborations, and I really encourage them that you don't need them all the time. And I love working on stuff by myself and, you know, just being in my own head, too, but... Opening up to other musicians, it's really good. And it keeps your sort of ego management in check as well and, and sort of where your sometimes your first idea is not always your best idea. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think all of us have learned that from working in film and television, but I think when you work with somebody else, it, it teaches you that in a really gentle and productive way. Laura, you mentioned Lovecraft Country, and I wanted to just comment on that because you talk about opportunities to stretch your legs and kind of expand and compose in a way that's intuitive and you're given a lot of room for that to breathe. I just felt like that was an example of a a space where you could do that. I mean, the, the music in that series, I felt just inhabits the space so beautifully and, and is integrated into that, that wild environment that we're taken into. And how did you feel you and Raphael arrived at, at that organically? Well, you, you have to remember all of that was done during the pandemic. Mm. So every single instrument was recorded separately. Whoa. And basically we started an orchestra called the Unison Orchestra. And at, at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, everybody was not working. So, um, you know, we had people from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, New York Phil, we had people all over the world who were playing this. And um, my engineer, Brad Hanel, basically would do seminars with the musicians um, about how to um, record themselves, because a lot of them had never done it. So it was like, Brave New World. And so it was kind of like getting this series. Was a, I think it was the first time in a long time that I'd had the budget for an orchestra. And of course, it's the effing pandemic. So it's like, you know, okay. So we had to come up with another solution. Um, so I think that, uh, that that sound reflects that. And there were weird, I mean, this is way more specific than what you're asking, but I'll just say it just because it's on my mind. Please. There were weird things that emerged out of that show that I bring with me now. Like, think about it for a minute. So you've got one woodwind player because getting files from eight people is going to be incredibly difficult, right? So I've got one guy who's very good who, um, who can record himself. He doesn't play the bassoon, but he plays open English horn and he has low clarinets. So there's no bassoon anywhere, right? And suddenly, well, you've got a tuba and you think, well, tuba is this big instrument. Guess what? Tuba isn't a big instrument. Everybody thinks it is, but it isn't. But tuba combined with low woodwinds, well, now that's big. And so you can add a low woodwind in with the tuba and you can get the kind of buzz that you want out of low brass. Well, those are orchestration lessons that I took with me into my later, into the marbles, into everything that I've done since. Also, if you've got the first violins, right, you've got six first violins who are going to play first violin, second violin. Well, you can't have Unison's violin 
one and violin too, right? So suddenly the violas and the first violins become partners in crime. And the second violins wind up being able to loop above the first violins. And it's very, it's actually very English string writing. You know, the sense that, that you don't have to stay in your kind of um, registral boxes uh, with the strings that you can use them to weave it now nobody can see my hands but I'm rising <laughs> them up weaving. and down <laughs> yeah and so I like working that way on that project was in, incredibly incredibly interesting for me and also Misha Green uh, the showrunner is an absolute genius Sh sound to her is everything it's people talking it's um the famous the the sixties debates with James Baldwin, you know, she uses that as a piece of audio. Um, she let me write an opera aria for uh, as a requiem for the victims of the Tulsa massacre. So this is this is somebody that you can pitch to, and she says, "Yeah, go for it. Let's hear let's hear what it is." And 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 she does it. But she's also somebody who wanted um, a different musical genre for every episode. So episode three is horror. Uh, episode four is Indiana Jones. Episode mm -hmm. six is, is war movie. Uh, and so, you know, I got to stretch and, and Raphael, of course, too. I mean, he really shown in episode seven, which was all this Afrofuturism. So we had all these like weird kind of early modular synth sounds that he that he developed. And so it's kind of like everybody... Everybody was doing what they did best on that show. interesting though talking about orchestration because you know I, I, I've got the Nelson Riddle orchestration book and you know you've done loads of theory at, at music college about how best to orchestrate for an orchestra and I feel like that totally composing in the pandemic and piecing it all together singularly makes you realize like something like you wouldn't write a flute solo with a big brass section but actually you can because you can poke that out in a mix now and I think a lot of those kind of hangovers of how you should do it properly for the orchestra or even just, you know, you can, it, it's like you can be so much more creative now because of this tool that we have to mix things and to poke instruments out in unusual ways that you wouldn't think that you could. You can and you should. And and yeah. I, it, and like for the Marvels, we had seven flutes and two, including a contrabass flute, which you have to actually stand up to play. When she played that thing, it filled up that whole stage. I mean, it is loud. There is nothing soft. Now, she has to take a lot of breaths. Yes, that's for sure. And I think breath is something um, that a lot of MIDI composers um, forget about. Mm. And I think it's important. And I think when you're composing, um, whether you're going to uh, actualize it or not, whether you're going to record or not, you have to think about breath because it literally lifts your hand up when a horn player needs to breathe. Lift your hand up when a flute player needs to breathe, and it will seem so much more natural um, in terms of, of, of MIDI realizations. And, and you know, I, I actually really appreciate all the noise that's left in a lot of the Spitfire recordings. Like, there's one where like everybody's putting their bows down. I can't remember which which sample, but I like all oh, that. Those LCO, I've got loads. Yeah, in those LCO. Just like strings. just like lots of like like stuff in there, and uh, you know you might want to take it out in uh, with real orchestra, but with a uh, with a sampled orchestra, it actually helps. You know when you've got the air and the room in there, it helps it make make it sound more real. Thank you. 
Hey, Laura, uh, just before we go, if you don't mind, just I, you've brought up advocacy a couple of times, um, and it seems very important to you. Obviously, you're the, the founding president of the Alliance for Women Film Composers, and I would just, if you could give a glimpse as to what, you, what that means on a practical level day to day. You've worn so many hats in this industry, and you have had so many experiences, and are you kind of the person that people look up to in that, in that organization where it's like, Give me an example, let's say, of, of trying to find a way for a young composer, a young woman composer for a project where you brought all this experience to bear and getting something over the over the hump, if you will. Well, let me I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Natalie, did you go to the women's lunch at the Academy last? Are you in London? Yeah, I went to the one in London. Yeah. OK, so I started that initiative. Yeah. It's so basically... You're in the Academy now, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I got to the Motion Picture Academy, when I was admitted in 2015, and then I became a governor in 2016, I was the first woman composer that had been admitted since Rachel Portman in 1996. So you have to understand that it was, like, bad. And when I got there... um, I was there, uh, I'd started the alliance, and so I had had a reputation, I think. And, like, you think that, that, that it's, like, it's these big actions or something like that, but I think one of the most radical things that we did was the directory, because basically people thought there weren't any women composers, and they would justify their decisions not to hire any by saying that there weren't any. So by actually saying... We started out with 30, and now I don't know, but there's probably 2,000 in there. But by saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not true. There are 30, there are 50, there are options for you. I think that that was radical. I think one of the things that I really, really am glad that I did when I was a governor at the academy was I really helped, along with my fellow governors, push through the short list. Now you think, okay, well, why is the short list significant? Well, just imagine that if you have 15 people on a short list as opposed to five people on a nominee's list, you're elevating people, right? You're saying there's more opportunity for diversity, not only with gender, but also with race and with, with, with all kinds of other things. So that then the studios say, oh, you made the shortlist. So then everybody comes in. So there are all of these these things that you can do with an organization like the Academy, but even with the Alliance, which is, of course, you know, much more like roll up your sleeves, let's put it on a show type of thing still, that are very, very powerful. It's hard to figure out what they are. And I came in at a time where there was so little that practically doing anything was remarkable. And that's not to minimize what I did because I'm very, very, very proud of it, really proud of it. And when we went to the Academy New Members Reception the other night, there were, you know, 30 of us in a line. Now, remember, this is, I said in, in 2016, it would have been me, Rachel Portman, and Ann Dudley, right? So uh, now we're looking, you know, seven years later at, at a long, beautiful list of women. And Jermaine Franco, you know, had an Oscar nomination. And, and you know, we're, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other landscape. So, so I think that's it. Um, I think that w- what I would say to you, a younger composer is we still have to open up the top um, and I think that that continues to be important. Um, we have to, our numbers the are... Fil- the film industry, like to be clear. The t- yeah, the top. In other words, the top budgeted films and stuff like that, our numbers are still very, very low. Uh, if we don't open up the top, there's no place for people to go. Yeah. Right? So you can have all the mentorships in the world. You can be the best mentor. You can have, you know, funded recordings and all the things. But if if there are not positions at the top that open, then then those younger composers will stagnate. Um, so I think that's something I think about a lot in terms of next steps and, and trying to figure out a way to continue to to open those doors. And I, I, and I would just encourage um, also everybody to get involved in advocacy. It's really worth your time. It will be the most satisfying thing you've ever done in your life. And well, this is what we're trying to do is with Spitfire is um, we're interviewing. So um, Alita is going to be following your interview, and she's been on the um, Joseph, uh, the Quenga, um initiative this year that 
that the academy set up great and um she's going to be interviewed after you and she's doing a, a little tribute piece but and uh yeah spitfire are hoping to sort of promote some up-and-coming composers as well as these great. amazing people like yourself who we've had on the podcast so that's great yeah so thank you so much yeah, for oh my god thank you today. it's really nice to know that you're there and you're on the front lines making music and you're in the com- control center kind of giving your your knowledge and experience to people and and it's it's really it's comforting to know that somebody like you is out there working for not only yourself but for others it's really great thank you i appreciate that and natalie i'm are you there all fall uh, yeah, I don't think, yeah. I should be coming to LA soon. But So I'm hoping, we're hoping, hoping, hoping to do a cast and crew uh, screening of the Marvels with the orchestra and choir. So I'll make sure that you get an invite to that. I think it'll oh, be really fun. Yeah, I would love that. That would be amazing. Thank you. Good. All right, thanks. So great to meet you, Charles. Good to meet you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for coming on. All right, take care. All right, bye. 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 